My own? All right. You're going to take your Bibles and open up with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 13. If you're looking at the, uh, the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 900, I believe. Gospel of John chapter 13. And um, one of our other pastors, Josh Strickland, uh, got called in yesterday to preach at a, another church that we, we pray for in the area, La Plata Baptist Church. Their pastor uh, had a, an injury that he was not able to preach. So I also want to just pause and not only pray for our time as we sit under the word, but also pray for La Plata Baptist and for Josh as he preaches there. So if you will, let's join together and ask the Lord for his help. Father, we pause and remember that apart from you, we are blind we are deaf. Apart from you, we are dead in our sins. And so we thank you for your spirit that gives life, your spirit that raises the dead, your spirit that opens the eyes of the blind, your spirit that opens the ears, that changes the heart. We are in need, Lord. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand and to believe and to obey and to do your word. We pray for Pastor Josh as he is uh, preaching at La Plata Baptist this morning. We pray for Garrett Connor, their pastor, and the rest of their church as they gather today. We pray that you would uh, encourage them, cause them to grow in love and unity and in holiness as your word goes out there as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I sometimes wonder what it would be like to get into a time machine and go back and be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Wouldn't that be interesting? These were hand-picked men by Jesus. And they each kind of have their reputations that don't tell the whole story about them, but things that we know about them. Thomas, who is known for his doubts. Peter, who would deny him. Judas, who would betray him. When you kind of look at the 12, it's kind of a motley crew of disciples. Two of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, were an interesting group. They were on the political spectrum. They were polar opposites. Simon the Zealot came from a group whose goal was to overthrow Rome and to use force if necessary. Some would consider the Zealots as terrorists. Matthew, on the other hand, was a tax collector. That means that he was employed by Rome. He wasn't trying to overthrow Rome. He was employed by Rome collecting taxes for them and from his fellow Jews. So many of his fellow Jews would see him as a traitor. So you have a political terrorist and a political traitor, and Jesus picks both of them and puts them on the same team. I'd love to see that. Why did Jesus put those two together? What were his expectations for Matthew and for Simon? What were his expectations for the rest of the disciples? What are his expectations for us? Well, look down with me at John 13, and I want you to skip down to verse 34. We're going to kind of parachute first of all into verse 34. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus commands, expects, demands love. That his disciples, his followers, would love one another just as he loved them. This love for one another, despite their differences, is then the evidence to a watching world that they were his disciples. Pretty cool. So what does it then mean for us? We, we hear this call to love at different places in the Bible. We talk about love. We hear love talked about in the culture. But what does it mean to love? What does it mean for us to love just as Jesus loved? That's what John is going to show us in John 13. And we can break chapter 13 into three different scenes. So if you're, if you're a note taker, I just got three scenes for you. Scene number one, the foot washing. That's verses one through 17. Scene number two, the prediction. That's verses 18 through 30. Scene number three, the command. That's verses 31 through 38. Three scenes, the foot washing, the prediction, and the command. Let's look at scene number one. John 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 1 introduces this foot washing scene for us. Uh, The scene, the setting, is the Jewish Passover. You can read about it in Exodus 12 and 13. The Passover commemorated uh, God's delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. And on the last of the 10 plagues, God commanded his, his people to put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And those who obeyed by faith, uh, the wrath of God would then pass over those houses 
who had the faith and obedience to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, and they were saved. And then Jews would celebrate this every year to celebrate his deliverance. Now, as we read through John's gospel, you'll, you'll remember that John has talked about this hour. Five times he's, he mentions the hour, the hour, the hour. And, and up until now, uh, we've been told by John, Jesus' hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour had not yet come. So we're like, when, when is this hour then? Now in verse 1 of chapter 13, we read, Jesus knew that his hour had come. And he's talking about the hour that he's about to depart from, uh, depart out of this world. So the hour refers to Jesus' death, his resurrection. In laying down his life, Jesus is going to show how he loved his disciples to the end, as verse 1 tells us. That end, that idea of loving to the end can actually be translated as him showing the full extent of his love. It's not just an eternal love, it's showing the full extent of or the capacity of the depth of his love. And it's at the cross that we see uh, his love on full display. But for many Jews, the disciples included, the idea of a Messiah, the idea of a king who would suffer and die a criminal's death, the most humiliating death of a criminal, that just didn't make sense. It didn't fit their expectations for the Christ or the Messiah, the King. And so to help them understand the purpose of his death and what it meant, Jesus gives them a parable. He gives us a parable ahead of his coming death. It's the parable of him washing their feet. Now, the disciples had celebrated the Passover since they were children as growing up as Jews, but this Passover meal was a unique one. When they arrived in the upper room that evening, the food was already prepared. The food was set out on a table. Don't think of a, a table with chairs. It's a, it's a low-level table, most likely in a U-shape with little couches that they would lay down on their side on with their feet extended on the floor outside them. So they walk into the upper room, the food is prepared on this table, and when you enter the room, the disciples very likely looked around for the servant who would then wash their feet, as was their tradition, and there was no servant to wash their feet. So they didn't really say anything, they just kind of ignored that, maybe they just forgot to set that up, to hire that servant, and so they just walk in and each of them lay down on their couch at their place at the table. As the meal begins, Jesus would give thanks before the meal. And things look normal. Another normal Passover feast. But then the normalcy stops. Because out of the pattern, Jesus stands up in the meal. So all eyes go upon Jesus. What's he doing? And the room falls silent. Verse 4 says, He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, And he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He would strip down to nothing but a towel. That was the garment of an outfit of a servant. And feet washing was was a menial task that was reserved for the lowliest of servants. And so you can imagine the shock of these disciples. What what is going on? What What is the master doing? Can you imagine 
being one of those disciples in that minute? How uncomfortable, how uneasy each of these disciples would feel? Their feet, their sandals would be smelly, dirty, grimy, because they would walk every day, all day, on roads that were covered in dust and in manure from animals. But Jesus would take those filthy feet in his hands and wash them and dry them off with a towel that was around his waist. The room of tongue-tied disciples was silent except for the sound of water gently being poured over their feet. It was silent until Jesus came to Peter. Peter breaks the silence, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus explains that, that, that his actions will not make sense. His actions that are pointing forward to his coming death will not make sense until later, until after his resurrection. But Peter would not have his master demean himself like this, not on his watch. And so Peter objects, you shall not ever wash my feet. Not my Messiah. Peter's words, at first, they sound noble. They sound words like words of devotion and love and respect. But they missed the point. So Jesus corrects Peter. He says, if I do not wash you, you do not have, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. John would later write in his letter in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, because God is holy, because in him there is no sin, no darkness at all, sin and darkness cannot come into his presence or else he would cease to be holy or the, 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 the darkness or the sinner would be destroyed. And that's why Jesus warns Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. And notice that Jesus does not say, if Peter, if you do not wash yourself, he says, no, 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 if I do not wash you. And the reason he's emphasizing the I is because Peter needs the cleansing that only Jesus can provide. The cleansing from sin. Again, remember the, the, the feast that they're celebrating, the feast of the Passover. For centuries, the Passover meal pointed forward. Every time they would take the lamb, the Passover lamb, and slit the throat of the Passover lamb and take the blood, it was a reminder that was pointing forward to the day when God would come in his son as the Passover lamb. Jesus was the fulfillment of centuries of Passover celebration. He was the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And so this foot washing is far more than just a good deed that shows Jesus' humility to his disciples. It, first of all, symbolizes the death of Christ and his resurrection that will wash away the sins of those who trust in him. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the good news of Christianity. Jesus is God's gracious solution to our sin problem. 
And you can go to any, any other world religion, and every other world religion says that the answer to the problem of sin is that you need to do good works. And if you just do enough good works, if you do enough religious practices, if you follow these rules, and in the end, if your good outweighs your bad, then God will let you in. But God is far more holy than that. God cannot look at sin, even the smallest of sins. He cannot allow sin into his presence. And like Peter, we cannot clean ourselves no matter how hard we scrub. We, like Peter, need the cleansing that Christ alone provides. And on the cross of Christ, he provides that for us. On the cross, Jesus, the sinless son of God, takes on himself the sins of all those who trust in him. And there on the cross, he is punished in our place He takes the righteous wrath of God that we deserve for anyone who will trust in him. And in exchange, he clothes us with his perfect record of righteousness so that when God looks at those who are in Christ, he no longer sees your sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his son and treats you like he treats his son. Friends, that is the amazing, breathtaking, scandalous grace of God. It might sound too good to be true, but it is true. Friends, if Jesus does not wash you, you have no share, no part with God. My plea to you is that you would today turn from your sin, that you would trust in Christ and him alone. Peter, at this point in the story, will not understand the foot washing and how it symbolizes the cleansing that Jesus will provide in his death and resurrection. He won't understand it until after the resurrection. But in typical Peter fashion, it does not stop him from telling Jesus what to do. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my feet. (laughs) I like Peter. I appreciate Peter. I think some of us see ourselves in Peter's impulsiveness. And his impulsive words means that Jesus can now teach another point as he does in verse 10. He says to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. What's he saying in verse 10? What's he mean here? I think what he means is this is that when a person trusts in Christ and they become a Christian, When you trust in Christ who died and rose again, the Bible says that you are justified. You are justified. That's a word that means that God declares you a guilty sinner, innocent. But I'm guilty. How does he declare me innocent? Because of Christ. As verse 10 says, Jesus makes you, the one who trusts in Christ, completely clean. Not partially clean, not I'll do it halfway, it's up to you, the rest of the other half. No, completely clean. And so our our legal standing before a holy God, what, what justification means is that our legal standing before God is that we are innocent and that innocence will never change. Your legal standing before God of being declared innocent will never change, Christian, Because your sin, past, your sin, present, your sin, future, has been nailed to the cross. That's what we read about in Colossians 2 this morning. 
It has been nailed to the cross. Hebrews 10 verse 14 puts it this way. By a single offering, that is the the, the death of Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we are justified, declared once for all, innocent. And, Hebrews 10, 14, we are being sanctified. In other words, we are being slowly, progressively made day by day like Jesus. It's hard, it's painful, it's slow, but he's making us like Jesus. We're being sanctified. Friends, that's why forgiven sinners still confess their sin, even as Pastor Tony led us this morning. I thought we were forgiven, past, present, future. We, we, you were a Christian, and yet we, we still confess our sins. Why? Because when we sin as Christians, our legal standing before God, our justification does not change. But our fellowship with God does change. Ephesians 4.30 says that when you sin, you grieve the Spirit of God. It hinders our relationship with him. We're still his son, his daughter, but now we've grieved him. And so we confess our sin. We confess our forgiven sin in order to restore the fellowship with God, the joy of our salvation. That's why we confess sin. Now, in verse 11, the fact that Judas shows up, and Judas shows up all over 13, right? The fact that Judas shows up in 11, though, is remarkable. And John includes him and the details about him on purpose, Jesus knew that this man, Judas, was going to betray him. He knew it ahead of time, and he tells everybody ahead of time. And yet, look at what Jesus does. He washes Judas' feet. What was Judas thinking when he was having his feet washed? What was Jesus thinking? He loved him till the end. Man, what a stunning picture of God's love. What a stunning, remarkable picture of God's patience. This foot washing symbolized the cleansing that Jesus' death and resurrection would provide. But then after showing the cleansing that it points forward to, that it is a parable of, he then turns around after washing his disciples' feet and calls them to follow his example. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus starts off in verse 12 asking a question. He, he washes his disciples' feet. He sits back down, and they're like, what is going on? And he says, do you understand what I just did to you? And again, they, they won't understand the cleansing that his death will achieve until later. But they do understand that his action in washing their feet, they do understand that it represented a humble, sacrificial, servant-like act for their good. They get that. They're uncomfortable with it, but they get that. 
What's interesting, though, is while Jesus had just washed their feet, meanwhile, Luke's account of the same Passover meal, same meal, different perspective, Luke tells us that a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Luke 22, 24. Let that sink in for a little bit. While Jesus is hours away from the agony of the cross, well, he will suffer for sinners like us. The disciples are obsessed in how they look in the mirror. Who's the greatest? What a contrast. Friends, when our definition of greatness is based upon our performance or how we compare to other people, we will begin to see other people not as image bearers that we're called to love, we will see them as competition. People that we will use to make a name for ourselves, not people to serve. Jesus' foot washing was not a denial of his authority. His foot washing was not a denial of his position. They are right to call Jesus their teacher and their Lord. His point here is that if he, their teacher and their Lord, has humbled himself and and taken, taken on servants' clothing and served them and made sacrifices for them, how much more then should they take up the towel and serve each other? That's his point. Verse 15, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Friends, I wonder how you're doing in this. I wonder how I'm doing in this. I don't think any of us can stand up and say, man, I'm knocking this one out of the park. We are more shaped by the world's definition of greatness than we like to admit. And Jesus is calling us to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Sacrifice, humility, doing menial tasks that no one will ever see or know that you did. No one's ever gonna give you a trophy or a gold star or a reward or thanks. Our flesh recoils at the thought of those types of things. But Jesus sets the example and he says in verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. We're not blessed if we learn about Jesus' example. We're not blessed if we agree with it. We're not blessed if we even hear a sermon about Jesus' love and sacrifice and service. We're blessed, Jesus says, if we do like him. Many of Jesus' disciples will soon know that blessing. They will do as Jesus called, but one of them will refuse. Scene number two, the prediction. Scene number two, look at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go, what we, go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. After the foot washing scene, as uncomfortable as it was, the dinner resumed. I think we can assume the conversation around the Passover meal resumed. Maybe the disciples thought, we're getting back to normal now. That was awkward. But soon they look at Jesus and they see that something's wrong. The text tells us in verse 21 that he was troubled in his spirit. So the conversation comes to a lull. And in that moment, Jesus announced, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Betray Jesus? Who would do such a thing? How could anyone betray Jesus? Especially after walking with him for three years, seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching, walking with him, sharing meals with him receiving his love and care and concern. How could any of them betray Jesus? And so concerned and distraught, each disciple asked with embarrassment, is it I, Lord? Even Judas Iscariot asked Jesus, is it I, Lord? Eventually, Peter now a little bit more cautious after his rash words, makes a signal to John who's sitting right next to Jesus and he says, why don't you ask Jesus who it is? And so John does. And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread after I've dipped it. So he takes that piece of bread, he dips it in the bowl, and he hands it out to Judas Iscariot. Just pause the scene. Judas has not yet received it. In that moment, I imagine it would feel like time was standing still. Judas' mind would be racing. Because we know from other accounts that the arrangements for the betrayal had already been put in place. He'd already talked to the high priests. He'd already received the 30 pieces of silver. But he hadn't gone through with it yet. And so as the bread was in front of him, he had to decide in that moment, would he go through with it? There's still time. 
he could come clean right now. He could repent. He could say, Jesus, I was wrong. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. I was wrong. And so I imagine since the time he had set up the betrayal, he might have gone back and forth whether or not he was going to go through with it. But one of the things that bothered Judas was that he just seemed too meek, too weak to be the Messiah. Didn't fit his expectations. And now this whole foot washing thing, seeing Jesus in a servant's clothing doing the lowliest of lowly menial tasks of a servant, that was just wrong. That's unfitting for the king. And so Judas, in that moment, makes his mind. And he takes the bread. And when he makes that decision, the text tells us that Satan took hold of him. And John ends in verse 30 remembering one minor detail. As Judas went out, the door opens and he remembers, oh yeah, it was night. Outside was darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, had come into the world to give life, but Judas refused to come into the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. You see this wrestling going on with Judas. And even as we saw a couple weeks ago in John 12, if we stiff arm God long enough, he will give us over. And we see that happening right here. Judas makes up his mind, is given over, he stiff-armed God long enough, and darkness, darkness took over Judas. I think one of the things that we're meant to see in this whole scene here is that Jesus' betrayal did not take him by surprise. Uh, over and over, we're told what Jesus knew ahead of time. Jesus knew this, Jesus knew this, Jesus knew this. We see what he knew ahead of time. We also see his authority and his power in this whole scene. Verse 11, Jesus knew who was to betray him. He wasn't surprised by this. That Judas was one of the 12 was not an oversight. It was not a lapse in judgment by Jesus. Verse 18, Jesus said, I know whom I have chosen. He knew who he, he, knew who he was picking when he picked Judas. Far from being an accident, Judas' betrayal of Jesus was actually a fulfillment of of scripture. Yes, Judas was a human being who made real choices and he would be accountable for those real choices that he made and yet in God's sovereignty his real choices would be fulfilling prophecy that happened thousands of years beforehand. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 41 verse 9, "He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me." It's a picture, it's a it's a violent picture of of a trusted friend that you're sharing a meal with, you're sharing bread with, and then all of a sudden, out of warning, bam, he kicks his heel in your face. He karate chops your, your face with his heel. You trusted him. You open up your heart to him. You open up your life to this friend, and all of a sudden, bam, you're betrayed. And I think Jesus picks this image in Psalm 41.9, and you can read Psalm, the whole psalm, 41, later this afternoon, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vivid picture of what's going on here. He cites this text beforehand to show how Judas, in exchange for the love and kindness that Jesus had shown him, this is how 
Judas would respond. He would lift up his heel in betrayal of Jesus that would result in the, the false accusation and ultimately the criminal's death of Jesus. I wonder if you've been betrayed by a close friend, by a spouse, by another church member. Friends, Jesus knows what it's like. He knows better than any of us what it's like. Come to him if that's where you're at today. Once again, we see God's sovereignty, Jesus' sovereignty in this. He knew this was coming, and so when Judas had made up his mind, Jesus tells him, what you are going to do, do quickly. The disciples don't know what he means. They have, I, think, I think they probably imagine that he's going to making preparations for the, the meal. They're, they're trying to grasp, wrap their minds around it, but, but Judas knows what he means, and Jesus knows what he means, and he's, he's in charge the whole time. He even commands Judas, do it. This is no accident. Jesus was not taken by surprise. This was not just some, something done to Jesus and it was unfortunate. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is in charge the whole time. Friends, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Both for the disciples and for us. Look at verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place. Why? That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus knows what's coming. He, he stands on the precipice of his death, of being mistreated and rebuked and, 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 and mocked. And even then, when they should be caring for him, even then, his concern is for his disciples. He's preparing his disciples so that when the, when the heat turns up on them and they face hostility and persecution, they can look back on this moment and know Jesus' betrayal was not an accident. It was God's plan, his gracious plan from the beginning. And so when they face hostility in the future, and when we face hostility today, we can look back on this event and know that Jesus is who he said he was. He's trustworthy. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he deserves our trust. And that brings us to the final scene, scene number three, the command. Scene number three, the command. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow 
till you have denied me three times. Man, this, this whole meal has been an emotionally exhausting meal, right? I mean, come on. But once Judas leaves the room, it's interesting, Jesus' tone changes. In verse 33, he addresses the remaining 11 disciples as little children. He sees himself as a father-like figure and them as his little children. It's a term of endearment. It's, it's a tender term. It's a term of affection. Jesus knows that in a matter of hours, he's going to be headed to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to leave his disciples behind. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be confusing for them. He says, where I am going, you cannot come. Not yet anyway. And he knows the immense challenges that are coming right down the road for their faith. Again, in a parallel account, in Luke's account of the same meal, Jesus warns in Luke 22, 31 and 32, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Friends, it's not just these disciples in the first century. The world that is opposed to God, our sinful flesh, and Satan himself and his fallen angels want our faith to fail today. We're not playing games. But keep in mind what Jesus so mercifully and lovingly has been doing and what his aim has been in this whole chapter. In verse 19, Jesus' aim has been to strengthen the followers in their faith. I tell you this ahead of time so that when it comes, you may believe. I want you to believe. I want to strengthen your faith. I don't want your faith to fail. How will he do that? How will he help these fledgling disciples who are a motley crew? How will he help them Keep trusting him in hard times. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Friends, in addition to praying for us, as Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is doing right now that your faith may not fail. Another thing that Jesus does to strengthen our faith, to keep us going until we cross the finish line, is he gives us the church. It's in our loving one another that he keeps us going in hard times. Satan wants to sift you and your faith he wants your faith to fail. But God has given us, the, the, the people that you're in covenant relationships sitting right next to you, he's given us each other as we love each other so that our faith does not fail. That's how important this is. That's how important what you're doing right now is. Now, God has told his people in the Old Testament to love each other. In Leviticus 19.18, he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not the first time that the Bible talks about this call to love one another. So Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. What makes this commandment a new commandment? Well, let me 
offer three suggestions. First of all, Jesus' command to love is new because it has a new object. The primary aim in the Old Testament in the, the call to love in Leviticus was the call to, your call, the object of your love was to love your Jewish neighbor. Look at the other people who have Jewish nationality and love your neighbor. But Jesus' death opened salvation to all the world to include any person who trusts in Christ from every ethnicity, class, race, nationality, gender, age, social position, the doors open through Christ. And we come together, not in Israel, we come together in the church. That's what makes up the one another. When you think of, well, who does Jesus mean when he says love one another? He means this church. The disciples were a motley crew and we are a motley crew. Ephesians 2, Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who was made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. When you think about what does it mean to love one another, it means he, for us, the primary application, yes, we are called to love the world, but I think first of all, we're called to love the motley crew of one another, this church. Amen? Second, Jesus' command to love is new because it has a new standard. Not only has it a new object, it has a new standard. As Jesus puts it, we are to love one another how? Just as I have loved you. That's the standard, church. Let that sink in just a bit. <laughs> Christian love is far more than cliches on a Hallmark card or pithy sayings. Christian love involves action. It involves sacrifice. It involves humility. It involves denying oneself. It involves taking up our cross and dying to ourself, not demanding our own way, but in considering others as more important than ourself. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, it's about time pastor said something about this. So-and-so needs to hear this. I have sacrificed, I have gave and gave and gave, and now it's their turn. They need to listen to this. And if that's what you're thinking, you've missed the point. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter is going to deny him three times, and yet Jesus didn't sit there and say, it's your turn. He loved them both. He washed their stinky feet he went to the cross and loved them to the end. To love as Jesus loved means it starts not with them, it starts with us. Look in the mirror. This is a new command because it's a new object, it has a new standard. That standard's hard to keep, right? Amen. We've got one honest person in here. None of us look in the mirror and be like, man, I'm knocking this out of the park. Now, the more we look, friends, the more you read John 13, the more you see Jesus' love, the more you see your selfishness, how self-centered you are and I am. No thoughtful Christian says, man, I'm nailing this. And yet Jesus doesn't suggest that we love one another like this. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. 
Church, I think this is an important word for us right now. We need to hear it. We are a multi-ethnic church. Just look around. Not everybody looks the same in here. We've got different backgrounds, different cultures, different skin colors, different social. I mean, we're, we're, we're a multi-ethnic church. I love that. But it can be hard. We agree on the gospel. We agree on Jesus. We agree on God's word. But there are times that folks in a church are going to disagree on disputable matters. We're going to disagree on matters of opinions surrounding politics, surrounding COVID-19 and certain policies or approaches, whether you should wear a mask or not, or vaccine or not, and some other, we're going to have different thoughts on a current event. And friends, if we all, listen, if we all agreed on every opinion, and if everyone saw things the exact same way, that would be real easy, wouldn't it? And God's word has wisdom. God's word has things to say and how to live in all these matters. And so we should, as his followers, read his word and labor to apply the wisdom and principles of God's word to every area of our life. But I suspect that God leaves many things in this life unclear and uncertain on purpose so that we learn to love that we learn to show charity with one another, that we learn to love just as Jesus has loved us, that we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. It's easy to love people who agree with us, who are kind and charitable and good-looking and helpful. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, even, even, even the world does that. How do you love the person in your church who is unlovely? And don't think that there's no unlovely people in this church. And don't think it's just them. I can be unlovely. I can be difficult for you to love, and you can be difficult for you to love, or other people to love. How do you love the person who's stingy? who's hurtful, who said something, whether they meant good by it or not, that just hurt. How do you love them? How can you love someone when nothing inside of you feels like loving them? You're just tired. I'm done. You ever asked that? Okay, let me end today with four applications that will help us Four applications, I think, that come from this text that will help us know how, with God's help, we can love this way. There's other things we can say. Let me give you four. Number one, taste and see God's love. Taste and see God's love. Start there. Don't just know about God's love. Don't just know how to answer questions on a test about God's love. We have to experience God's love. We have to taste it. We have to see it. As the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. When someone experiences God's goodness, when you experience God's undeserved love, his forgiveness, being adopted as his child, being made a new creation, you and I cannot help but to love this way. Not because we're, it's because it's overflowing from God's love for us. I think Peter is an example for us. Peter is overconfident. Peter is self-reliant. And he says, I'll, I'll die for you. No, you won't. 
He'll deny Jesus three times before this is the, the, the rooster crows. But here's the thing. You, keep, you, 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 you stick with Peter. Keep reading Peter. Years later, Peter will die a martyr. He will boldly stand for Christ. He will refuse to denounce Christ. He will no longer deny him. What happened? What made the change in Peter? Go to seminary? Did he try really hard to pull up his bootstraps? That's the Spirit of God. That's the answer. The Spirit of God changed him. The Spirit of God gave him a new heart, changed him. And listen, I want to talk a lot more about this, but hold on. John 14, 15, and 16 are all about the Spirit of God. Jesus is going to unpack the role of the Holy Spirit in 14, 15, and 16. So I'm going to hang on to that. We'll, we'll get there later. But suffice it to say, it's you, when you read the Bible and you hear a sermon, you won't see the beauty. You won't taste and see God's goodness unless the Holy Spirit does something. The Holy Spirit raises the dead. The Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see. The Holy Spirit gives you ears to hear. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. So church, pray as you read the Bible, as you meet with the church, as you sing songs of praise, as you labor for this. Pray. Ask God that his Holy Spirit would open your eyes that you might taste and see his love. Number two, how are we going to love when it's hard? Number two, keep eternity in view. Keep eternity in view. The disciples were arguing among themselves about who among them was the greatest. And they were competing uh, and comparing because they were desperate to prove themselves. But put that in contrast to Jesus. Jesus is serving. He's got nothing to prove. He's not insecure. Look at verse 3. Look at what Jesus knows. Verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and washed the disciples' feet. Knowing this, knowing the truth, that all things had been given to his hands, knowing who he was, that he, was, he came from God, knowing where he was going back to the Father, knowing this, he was free to serve. Christian, because you are in Christ, listen to this. You are fellow heirs with Christ. So Pastor Tywin preached about last week, Romans 8, 17. All things belong to Christ. That's cool. Guess what? You're in Christ. All things belong to you. 1 Corinthians 3, 21. Romans 8, 17. Check it out. They're under his authority. They belong to him and in Christ they belong to you. What do you have to prove? You, the, the world is yours. And so like, knowing that, when we don't feel like loving, we don't sit there and wait for the warm and fuzzy feelings to come first. <laughs> you wait for that, you're not going to love anybody. Like Jesus, step out in obedience, in obedience, serve and sacrifice for the well-being of others based on what you know to be true from God's word. Step out in obedience, knowing and believing God's promise in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God will meet you when you step out in faith. He'll provide you the desire and the strength to do what he commands. Step out in faith. How do we love when it's hard? Well, we, number three, reap the benefits. 
Keep the benefits in mind and reap the benefits. This is where I'm getting this from. Proverbs 14.4 says this. I love this proverb. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. I remember the first time I read that, I was like, what in the world is he saying? All right. If you're a farmer in the first century or in the ancient world, your ox helps you plow the field. Your ox helps you plant the field. Your ox helps you harvest the crops. Your ox is your tractor. You get rid of your ox, you're doing it all by hand. (laughs) Good luck. But here's here's what the proverb is saying. When you have those oxen, all right, that's, that's good. But when the oxen lives in your barn and eats your food, what's the byproduct of what they leave in your barn? Manure. Church membership, like any relationship, will leave a mess in your barn. A mess for you to clean up. When you are offended by another church member, when you are misunderstood by another church member, when you are weary from difficult relationships within the church, it's easy to think, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need this. If I go this alone, my barn will be clean. My life will be easier. You ever think that? Thank you. Yeah, you know what? It's true. Your, your barn will be clean. Your life will be easier. But what does Proverbs 14.4 says? It says, abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Friends, we need each other. We, we need each other. We, we need even the difficult people who are difficult to love. God uses the church of a motley crew to make us more like Jesus. Abundant crops come from the strength of an ox. It'll make a mess in your barn, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Friends, in light of a pandemic, Uh, Our decision to live stream our church service has been a tool for high-risk members who can't yet gather with us so that they can stay connected. And we're thankful for that technology. We're thankful for those who are running that technology. And friends, if you're watching online right now, we love you. And we look forward to the time when you can come back. But like any other tool... A tool can be misused. And so we need to guard our hearts here. If you're watching online for the purpose of convenience, if you're watching online to keep your barn clean, I just don't have to deal with that person, you're missing out. Now, for those of you who are here, you need to guard your hearts from self-righteousness. If you talk only to people that look like you or think like you, church, you're missing out too. It's more than just a matter of being here and having your rear end in a chair. But friends, I think I want us to see that the benefits that we can reap from having oxen in our barn far outweigh the mess that come with it. So First Baptist, grab your shovel. Let's get the ox in the barn. Let's step out and sacrifice and serve and get to know each other and be patient with each other and love each other because abundant crops come by the strength 
of the ox. Reap the benefits. Number four, last one, remember the purpose of love. Remember the purpose. Jesus says in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, right now our world is divided. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, We have an opportunity to show a different way and a better way that our world does not have access to apart from Christ. At the cross, Jesus made us one new man. Not he will make us one new man. He has made us one new man. His, his, he, on the cross, he destroyed, past tense, the dividing wall of hostility. And he's made us in Christ one new man. Our job right now is then to live out the truth that is already ours in Christ. Dying to self is never easy. But with God's help and his spirit, we can. We can. So why does Jesus put people like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector together? Why does he put us together? For his glory. Verse 31, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Why is God glorified in this? Because only God can pull together the people that he does in the church and transform us into a family that loves each other as we're called to, to be a light to the nations. And at the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. And it's what Jesus is doing right now. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray.